I would just like to say that I have never been more stir crazy in my entire life. I don't know what to do. I've read so many books. I've done a lot of my puzzle. And I ate all my snacks. No tienen tiempo. Trabajé toda la semana, desde la mañana. Trabajé toda la semana, hasta el anochecer. Volví agotada a casa toda la semana. Cené comida chatarra, cada anochecer. Conversé con mi smartphone cada noche, cada tarde, cada mañana, toda la semana. Musician and performance artist Vero Doss.
show starts in one minute. Five minutes past 12 midnight. From Hollywood. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world, Genuine Modern Radio. Radio Flom. my head she keeps me going every night and every day she drives me crazy but i'm feeling strong i wanna break it down all alone i wanna break it down on my own oh it's a feeling in my heart and in my bones if you won't help me then i'll do it on my own in times of troubles, I might be alone But I wanna take the crown on my own I wanna take the crown on my own I wanna take the crown on my own I'm better off love I call myself my
Austria. This was Rira. Find her at Rira's room on Instagram and streaming just about everywhere. This is Radio, Radio Flom. Flom. <coughs> I don't have Corona. I swear. You know this is entrapment what your cops did. <laughs> Birth date. Uh, February twelfth, post war. Nineteen twenty. Forty. Hey, come on, give me a break. I think I'm having a stroke. Yeah, right. What do we got here? My name is uh, Philip Dupree. Is it always as hot in here? No, it usually cools down around the middle of November. <laughs> Can I get something cold? I'm burning up. Hold on. Quarantine? What for? I don't know. The doctor's putting a sign up right now. What do you say, Doc? He's running almost 104. Does that mean we got to stay here all night? Huh? You mean we can't go home? Until we know what we're dealing with, no one goes in or out of this room. Uh, can't, can't we just wash and sneak out the back way? Just relax. Just take it easy. Barney Miller, a two-part quarantine episode. ABC Television, 1976. Bernice. Bernice, it's by order of the health department. What can I do? Uh, I'm home when they lift the quarantine. Yes, Bernice, I realize this is the first time since we're married we've slept apart. The change will do us both good. We're not fooling around with athlete's foot here, buddy. We're going to take the free down the hospital. Well, well, what about us? Don't we get any shots, pills? No. How long you been a cop? I was the first. <laughs> How come they never made a Barney Miller movie? The cast didn't want to do it. That's what I've got to do right now, is go and see who's streaming Barney Miller. It's got to be out there somewhere. This is ABC. And now, predictive text poetry. Roses are red. I'm not sure how long I'll be able to make the payment. We can do it. I have no money. Looking up at a character in film is referred to as God mode. Such a view often makes a character appear larger than life. They are above you, superior to you. This often happened with Charles Foster Kane in Orson Welles' 1941 film, Citizen Kane. In this film, Cain is often shot from the ground level. In one scene with his second wife, Susan, Cain stands tall and menacingly over Susan. As he does this, Cain actually and literally casts a shadow over Susan. In reverse, if a character is shot from above, then that indicates that they are diminished and looked down upon. We are to pity them. In this scene with Cain, Susan is on her knees. She is cowering down in a subservient frame of a mind, looking down on her, Susan is diminished and powerless. She caves into Cain's demands as he dominates her from a superior position above. Wow, look how young I was. Oh, you really were. Aren't you glad we met? Yes. Yeah, we have a good life together, don't we? We do. You still love me? Yes. I feel so far and distant. It's really bizarre. In Citizen Cain, proximity is used to show either closeness or distance between the characters emotionally. 
For example, with his first wife, Emily, Charles Foster Kane is sitting at a small table with her, and they interact like they really love each other. In the future, these two sit apart at a long table with each of them at either end, resulting in a shot of one of them from one side of the table to the other one at the other side of the table. This is also the case with Kane's second wife, Susan. This shows, in both cases, the distance between the characters as they've grown apart emotionally over the years. In the movie Citizen Kane, Charles Foster Kane is patterned off of the real-life newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Hearst built Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. Kane built Xanadu in Florida. Both Hearst and Kane collected statues from Europe. The architect Julian Morgan helped Hearst position his statues around Hearst Castle. Hearst also had a room full of statues upon his death, as he and Morgan had run out of time to position them. Kane also had a room full of statues. Both men were yellow journalists. Kane helped pioneer the technique. Hearst left Hearst Castle unfinished, and Kane left Xanazu unfinished. And this movie testifies to the fact that although Kane was not a real person, he was patterned after real people during that time period. Give me a mic. Radio Flom profiles upcoming artists, designers, musicians, and more. You know, with the worldwide lockdown stuff, we're all hurting just a bit. Please consider helping some of the artists that have been profiled on Radio Flom. Any artist could use the money right now, and you'll get something cool or weird in return. Maybe both, whether it be music or even original art. Flom, and I mean as a whole, even outside the radio biz, is pulling in... Let's see here. Is this script right? I proved it myself. That's the right amount. Whoa. $6? I mean, what even is ROI? We're super grateful for our past patrons, though. However, with these times, our supporters had to drop and we haven't been able to pull in new subscribers, understandably. That commitment is hard, but you can still support us by getting some genuine Radio Flom products. There's teas, mugs, stickers, and more, all through Flomhaus. I think I saw 7th Swami wearing our shirt. You can also buy us a coffee. You know Milk is narcoleptic, right? He could always use a Joe. As of right now, we've sold just enough to pay our internet and podcast hosting fees for another year. Thank you to everyone who has some flom to wear, drink out of, and stick to things. And we couldn't have done it without the coffee. Links for all of this are at the flom.us website. And with your support, expect a lot of new from all of us. Up next, we have About Us, the newest release from Kingsland. That's Kingsland with two ends.
I'm Paul from London. What's black and white and red all over? It's my cine choice. The Soviet Union silent black and white classic Battleship Potomkin, directed by Sergei Eisenstein from 1925. It was so popular and so controversial that it led to Sergei Eisenstein coming to Hollywood. He never made a Hollywood film, however, he made lots of contacts and even got a contract by Paramount Pictures. When he met Sam Goldwyn, he said to Sergei, I do like Battleship Potemkin. I would like you to do something similar and cheaper for Ronald Coleman. That film never happened, but let's look at the classic Battleship Potemkin, which did happen. Battleship Potomkin is beloved by film critics. It is a film critic's choice. It is a visual treat. It always features near the top of the best films of all time lists. I recommend it, and actually you can watch it for free on YouTube. Over the next eight minutes, I'm gonna talk about three things. Firstly, why it's a great film. Second, a little bit about its banning when it first came out in 1925 and after that. And also a little bit about Sergei Eisenstein's time in Hollywood and even a little journey to Sacramento. Let's start off by looking about the film itself. The story is about a mutiny on the battleship Potemkin which happened during the Russian-Japanese War. It was a real-life event and part of the 1905 Russian Revolution, which actually failed at the end. The mutiny failed and the revolution failed. The film itself, let's look at it. There's a flowing water me metaphor that roams through it. There's the incorporation of film montage. That's an economic use of shots to encourage a strong audience reaction. All through it, there's a synthesis of old art and new art together in film. There's a metaphor of flowing water early in the film, which later in the film comes up again as flowing sailors in mutiny as they erupt and flow against the officer class on the battleship Potemkin itself. There's a secularisation of religious motifs, which the audience in Russia and the Soviet Union in the early 20s would have uh, understood, including the Odessa Steps scene, you know, which is wonderful. You've got the great big ge geometric sort of uh, lines uh, of the stairs and the mother and the baby being sort of, um, you know, losing the pram, falling down the steps, so the baby dies, the mother dies, you know, this sort of sacrifice. In terms of the photography, it's marvellous, but if you look at the film, you'll see a lot of uh, sort of triangular sort of shapes and circular sort of shapes, including the way the ship's hull is used, the way the sailors are seen at the top looking down on us, which puts them in the position of kings and nobility in, in old art, which were always sort of looking down on us, and even sort of the religious icons. We've got the barrels of the gun, which were very, really important. So, so we see, you know, in terms of the photography, 
the use of metric sort of shapes, which is very important for the Russian and Soviet avant-garde. And actually, one of the things that we know about Sergei Eisenstein is that when he was at sort of in, in the theatre in Moscow in the early 20s, in 1922, his teacher was the Russian constructivist Lubov Popova at the theatre school there. So he was well aware of that from his time in the Soviet sort of theatre before he became a film director. The other side is that one of the things that we sort of see is another use of sort of uh, metaphors, which is a really sort of strong visual scene where there's maggot infested meat. And it's actually signed off as, as OK by Dr. Smirnoff on behalf of the officers. And it says it's actually fit for human consumption. Later, mutiny erupts. Uh, Dr. Smirnoff is actually chucked into the water. And on the subtitle of the silent film, it says uh, about him feeding the fishes. You know, so literally, Dr. Smirnoff himself uh, becomes the maggot of the, the meat that's not fit for human consumption, which we saw early on in the film. So that's a great callback to the earlier scene. So I'd say see it for yourself. You can see it, so see it on YouTube. At the end of it, you know, the mutiny didn't succeed, as I sort of said, but it ends on an optimistic sort of note with uh, the ship sort of sailing under the control of the mutineers, you know, that, that, which the audience can relate with, considering that they've had a revolution in Russia in 1917. And uh, the thing about it is, for me, that is a great metaphor, because what happened in reality were the, were the leaders were hung in 1907 by the Tsarist forces, the Tsarist state. Of course, the revolution was defeated in 19. 19- and there was a bloodbath by the Tsar as a part of revenge, exile, and lots of uh, refugees going around the world. But the thing about it is, by ending on the optimistic note, they're connecting that sacrifice in 1905 with the sacrifice of the Russian Revolution in 1925 when the audience were actually watching it. Now, what's really interesting about the film, um, at the time in the early 20s, the market forces had come back and a lot of American films were very, very popular, people like Chaplin, but even sort of popular films, westerns, that kind of thing. And what was interesting about this film was uh, it was the first time that, that Soviet film outsold, you know, the big American films and films from around the world, including um, Douglas Fairbanks' Robin Hood. The previous film by Sergei Eisenstein, his only film before that, was actually didn't do as well. It was called Strike, and it was based on a, a strike uh, of work. And what was interesting about that, a lot of the times that film was pulled for and and was replaced by a previous uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. sort of film. So Soviet film had come alive in the Soviet Union itself and wasn't just um, an outsold American film, Hollywood film. So let's now look at the reaction to the film. The film was uh, initially banned around the world in lots of countries, banned in Germany for a bit, though finally sort of shown, banned in Britain following a general strike, and then first shown in Britain in London in the London Film Club in 1929, banned in France as well, but again shown in private film clubs led by communists. In America, the feeling was sort of mixed. So, for instance, Pennsylvania banned Battleship Potomkin, though people like Charlie Chaplin said it was the best film in the world. Um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., the great big sort of superstar today said it was the most intense and profound experience of my life and it when he went to moscow in 1926 fairbanks he actually met eisenstein and offered him a deal uh, united artists which didn't sort of happen 
because there was a bit of a crisis in 1929 and that put the end to that. But he did end up in America in 1930 and received a deal from Paramount Pictures. That wasn't without controversy itself. Major Frank P. done a press campaign, done a great big 20-page dossier filled with anti-Semitism, uh, accused uh, Eisenstein of being a cutthroat red dog, accused it to be a part of a Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy, horrible Major Frank P, horrible nasty man, um, and also he accused the film of turning American cinema into a communist cesspool. Despite that, initially Paramount Pictures held the line and gave him his deal. He got $900 per week, him and his team. They got a nice great big bourgeois villa in Beverly Hills. He played tennis with Chaplin, went to parties, and even visited Walt Disney at his studios. Three projects, none of them actually happen. One I want to talk about was a film called uh, Sutter's Gold, which was based on the gold rush and the greed of 1848-1849. As a part of this sort of film, uh, the, the key thing about it was speculative mining took over fruitful agricultural lands and ruined them, basically. But what was really interesting, as a part of that film, he went to San Francisco and even popped into Sacramento to look at locations for filming this. Paramount Films in the end sort of said, oh, the film is too expensive, but the focus on political um, capitalist greed was obviously another factor in not giving the film the green light. So with that, his contract was terminated, he left and he went to sort of film in Mexico and then ended up back in the Soviet Union. So what I would say to you is watch the film, it was subversive. It changed what film could be. And uh, make up your own mind. Go and see it on YouTube at the moment. As I said, Battleship Potomkin. The other thing I would say is it's probably better watching it with an audience, but we can do that in the future and we can cheer the goodies and go against the baddies. So it did actually also fit in the Western tradition, but in the Soviet Union, that was called Agiprop. So enjoy it. some stuff going for us to to keep us entertained keep us home yes sir i have been building a uh, a fantasy television studio in my garage complete with uh with glittery stars and a suave um, mexican guitar player who's going to be playing my guitar he's actually a pinata but he's really really handsome his name is ricardo and i've got lots of colored lights and i've got a disco ball and i'm going to be singing some of my songs from the album lush life on live streaming channels so get ready to check that out and i'll also be answering questions and playing requests so i'm doing it all uh, what platforms can people find this on? I do believe it's going to be on um, Instagram and on TikTok. And we will record this stuff and then also put it on our YouTube channel, which is the Orion Experiences uh, YouTube channel. And fingers crossed, Netflix sees this and uh, yeah. gets us that. <laughs> it's kind of a mix between Pee Wee's Playhouse and Frank Sinatra. So, Which is the perfect combination during these insane dark times. It all makes sense for some reason. I don't know why. So when can everyone expect these live feeds to start? We're going to be starting to um, live stream April 1st through April 10th. And sometime I'll announce it on my uh, social media, but it's going to be sometime where 
people on the East Coast and also in the UK can watch it. So I'm not I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm not really sure what time of day that's going to be, but we will make it work. You're up and running with bright eyes shining The year's most widely read novel becomes today's most exciting, most timely motion picture. Airport, big scale in every way, has the biggest all-star cast ever assembled for a single universal motion picture. Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, Gene Seberg, Jacqueline Bisson, George Kennedy. George Kennedy, man. George Kennedy. The fucking George Airport. Kennedy. You know, the crazy thing is, like, you know, like, we know him, or at least I know him, um, through, like, a million kind of bad movies on UHF channels, uh, which you're going to need to, you'll probably need to include a wiki link, so people are like, what the fuck's a UHF channel? Um, but yeah, no, growing up, like, that's that's how you saw that guy. He was just in all those things. Like, he was sort of like the Samuel L. Jackson of the 70s. Yeah. Hello, Joe. Save your breath. Danny gave me the poop tonight. I'm not available. But I need somebody who knows. A genius like Petroni. <laughs> Hold the whipped cream. I've just had dessert. Oh, Joe. Do you have to go to work on a night like this? I don't call them emergencies anymore. They call them Petronis. You know, he, he was one of those, you know, that guy kind of guys. Um, and he wasn't just recognizable, but he, you know, he there was a, sort of a Sherpa-esque kind of thing where like you, you would, you would spend a time, sp- spend some time with a movie that you would not normally watch because, Hey, I'm watching George Kennedy. Like you can lead me through this a little bit. If it gets really dire, then I'm tapping out, but like, whatever. Who do you think you are talking to? Some kid that fixes bicycles. I know every inch of the 707. Take the wings off this and you could use it as a tank. This plane is built to withstand anything except a bad pilot. All right. Um, so I know I'm from that stuff, you know, a million movies about <laughs> transportation disasters. <laughs> like, so many movies about transportation disasters, like airplane, but on a train. He even did like a comedy. The one that I really remember was one called like Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was about like they refurbished the Chattanooga Choo Choo and like Barbara Eden was in it. And I found a, it was like an airport because he did all the airport movies. He did all that shit. And he did airport Concord Airplane 76 yeah, or whatever, made yeah. TV movie knockoff of Airplane done in the 80s. And they hired him, yeah, and he's playing the same character with a different name. <laughs> that's so brilliant. And now, Gadfly, Flomist, and future YouTuber, Jason Malenberg. The way I like to describe you is you're at 78 RPM and the rest of us is at 33 and a quarter. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very hyperactive um, in, a, in a number of, in a number of lanes. Like, Look at how prolific you are. I do a lot of stuff because I would go fucking insane if I didn't do a lot of stuff. Um, I just, I just yeah. need to like, and you know, it, it's weird. Like the thing with, being as busy as I am is that you, and and especially like doing project-based stuff, right? So like I work at an agency, it's very challenging work. If that was the only thing on my plate, that would be like enough on my plate. But then also I do Sacktown every other month. 
um, which is a whole mm -hmm. other level of responsibility. But it's also, it's almost like I switch into a different personality when I do that work, because that work needs to have a different personality. Then I also do all the illustration and the concert poster stuff. And then I do all the freelance stuff that I do. Yeah. I do all of these different things. But because it's all project-based, you know, or even like long campaigns, or, you know, you do, I'll do like a campaign for a college that lasts like eight or nine months or whatever, but that still feels like a piece to me, right? And so you'll get really, really busy yeah. and you get so exhausted and you'll be like, oh, I want is a day off, right? And then finally you get one. And usually by like two o'clock that afternoon, your brain gets into this place where it's like, you've never accomplished a fucking thing, have you? <laughs> like you need to, have you ever really done anything? And, and that's, yeah. that's what's bizarre about it, you know? And so that just that just makes you that just makes you, you know, have to be prolific because you're just like what what am I losing out on right now you know and even my even my even my downtime I schedule like that you know like I had a I had like a couple weeks where I knew that I wasn't going to have any extra stuff coming in but I was I knew that I needed to make myself have I made I needed to make myself do the relaxing downtime because I knew that there were a couple projects on the horizon that were going to get really hairy, right? Like, so I had a Foo Fighters poster coming up, um, for which is now, I mean, I did the poster. It's amazing. I can't show it, um, because the date is postponed and, and the band likes to debut the, the art themselves. And then I had concerts in the park coming mm -hmm. up, which has also been postponed. Um, and so during this two week period, I'm like, I'm going to make myself sit still. Like, I'm not going to like feel like, oh, you're a piece of shit because you're not working on like nine projects. Like right now, you're only working on like eight, <laughs> you know? Um, and so like the next, like the second day of that, I'm like, hmm, you know, I don't know a lot about the Roman Empire. That's a, that's a deficiency. <laughs> why don't I know? I don't know a lot about the Roman Empire. Like, why could, I would love to be one of those guys who's like, oh, well, you know, Cicero oh. had this exact same scenario in his mind and, and, and like that kind of shit. And so that's, I threw myself into like, reading and learn listening to podcasts and watching uh, documentaries and stuff and like i have learned a lot about the roman empire and so that's just that's what i do to myself if i get too too stationary you know i just start feeling like i feel like i'm wasting opportunity to do something you know? i took fall off i wasn't teaching a lot of courses and uh what i end up doing putting all my energy into the podcast mm. So this season, we're actually skipping weeks here and there because I was just like, uh, I burned myself out. Yeah. But I, I'm like, we can't do what we did this fall on a weekly basis yeah. anymore. And and then I had surgery and I was on my back oh, for uh, a few what months. What was that all about? Yeah, it was um, back surgery. I had a disc completely shut. And, but the whole time I was down... History of Roman Empire. I watched the Ottoman series. Uh, I was watching a lot of that's, films. That's next on the horizon too. It's like, and yeah, and yeah. yeah. The way the way that my uh, personality tends to work is that I motivate myself by feeling like I failed at something, yeah. <laughs> and then I get mad for failing at that. Like, why don't I know a lot about the Roman Empire? Like, what fucking piece of shit am I? So you know, and so that's that's how I push myself. It's like, and and then and then my brain also. My brain also like can create a world where mm -hmm. I'm 10 years on you. I got rid of that because I got sick of feeling like I didn't accomplish anything. And then yeah. the problem was I didn't have the motivation. So I had to find sort of a new motivation. And one of the things that's motivating me is we have followers now for all this flom stuff. Dang, nice. Yeah. And you, you actually inspired me by saying that you're like, you, you got to go after the smart people. Yeah.
you know, you can be like that and have like a million people who buy your record. And those are a million people who give a shit about the band as opposed to 10 million people who care about a song, you know? And so it, it's, it's like that, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, the Brian Eno thing where he's like, you should shoot the arrow and then paint the target around it, which I think is, is really cool. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, the other side to that, um, the other thing about not caring about popularity is that it's extremely freeing. And it's a lesson I learned the dismal way <laughs> by like, you know, I just like, <laughs> I, I've been doing concert posters forever and I certainly wasn't failing at it. I was getting some good gigs and all that, but it wasn't doing for me what I thought it might do. And it was partly because I came in at the tail end of the gold rush of it. Um, there's this weird thing that mm -hmm. happened at that, at that point in time where like, because, uh, concert posters became really lucrative, there were a lot of, there were a lot of dudes who were like getting contracted to do entire tour series and like the, the work was just really pedantic shit. Right. So it's like, oh, I'm going to do all of this indie bands dates. And I found this book of clip art from 1896 and each poster is going to be one piece of clip art with a tiny line of like tastefully set text below it. And it's like, there's nothing really exploratory about it. There's nothing seeking about it. There's really nothing. Else. It's like, you're, you're making like polite merch, which is fine. Um, and I mean, I make merch that's, you know, all everything I do is ephemeral, but I'm still kind of like pushing to do something within that space. And that's what makes the ephemera kind of interesting is like that you can kind of like blur that line between art and ephemera a little bit. And I like that kind of, you know, the idea that you can make something precious that's totally fucking disposable. I think that's that's what I really like like about doing the concert poster thing. But I mean, if I'm just ornamenting something according to like a current trope or trend, and then selling it for 40 bucks to somebody who just wants a souvenir of a time and place that doesn't really do anything for me and I don't care. And so because like I had not become successful at it really, um, like there was like a year where I'm like, well, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Like, I don't see what the point is. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm swinging for the fences every time mm -hmm. here and it's like not getting me anywhere. Um, and doing that, it was almost like choking down on the bat or choking up on the bat, uh, choking down on the bat, choking down on the bat. <laughs> um, because about 10 or 11 months later, I'm like, oh, well, now I want to do it, you know? And I had to reconnect with that part of myself. And, and it was only after that that I started becoming successful at it because now it's like I'm doing it with no expectation. There's no agenda. I'm literally just doing things that I want to see existing. And I'm not caring about hours versus money brought in versus whatever. I'm just doing this because I, I enjoy it. Like, and that's, that's, the, that's the freedom that like nobody giving a shit gives you because at that point you're, you know, I think, I don't think that I was ever self editing before that um, being like, Oh, well this won't sell or this, you know what I mean? I don't think I was doing that, but I'm sure that probably existed on some level. Whereas like now it's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do what I want to do because I just want to see it exist. Yeah. And that's how it started working out for me. Then, you know, next thing you know, I'm doing, you know, a whole bunch of stuff for Metallica and Kings of Leon and Foo Fighters and Weird Al, which is like just such an amazing thing to get to do a Weird Al poster. But like, you know, yeah. So, yeah, if nobody cares, you can do anything yeah. you want to. Uh, it's like a fun thing. And that's that's what this next project that's what this next project is all about i'm gonna make a i'm gonna make a youtube show that like nobody's gonna watch but i also don't give a shit because i just want to do it 
<laughs> help me edit if I could structure these things. Okay, we oh, just covered all yeah, the music In fact, that's actually a good stuff. tip for me because I have to figure out how I'm going to structure the show that I'm going to do. So that's good. <laughs> uh, Filmberg. What's up with Filmberg? Okay. So I'd, I'd been wanting to do something like this for a while. And I told myself last year, I was like, all right, I want to get into podcasting. But, you know, like there's so many podcasts. Um and you know, there's it, the the sad fact about it is is that like whenever there's like a new form like that, it's like it's the wild west. It can be anything, and then eventually it just settles down, shakes down, distills down into a few different kinds of archetypes, right? So you either have a political podcast, or you have one that's about unsolved murders or whatever, right? And there's still quite a bunch of flavors of it out there. Um, having said that, though, there's nothing I really want to do a podcast on. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, well, sort of, I mean, I think I'd be where I would fit into the podcast universe, I think would be as more of a Paul F. Tompkins type, whereas I would be a great mm -hmm. guest, but I'm not really looking to do that, you know? And, and I was glad that I actually thought that through because I think there probably are a lot of podcasts out there that exist just because someone wanted to do a podcast and I didn't want it to do that. There, there needs to be a reason for this to exist, right? Uh, there needs to be a compelling reason for it to exist. If I don't have something to say, then why the hell am I talking? Not that that really has yeah. ever stopped me, but and that's how I got to Filmberg. So um, it's so funny that we're talking about this this thing that I that I just named like a week ago, and then was like, oh, I make logos. I'll make a logo for it. It is. It is. Coming, um, it's going to be coming probably this summer. Uh, you know, as media consumption patterns change, I have found that I I watch YouTube a lot. Right. So. YouTube has really become my favorite content channel. And I'll spend I'll spend hours just rabbit holing down kind of different things. I mean, for, for a while it was a way to mine the past, right? And it, you know, again, I I'm really interested in ephemera, so that's the sort of stuff that interests me, you know. It's like here's 20 commercials from 1978 that played during Mork and Mindy or whatever. And it's like, that's <laughs> that stuff is fascinating to me. And then, you know, within that, yeah. you end up learning you, you, again, it's the archaeological thing, right? So you learn a lot about different eras, right? So you learn that commercials at that time were really long and really long-winded, you know, sort of like if you look through like an old Rolling Stone and there's like, there's a full page ad for a record and they spend like seven or eight paragraphs talking about the dudes who played on the record and it's like not minimal at all. It's just like this really <laughs> long form essay on like a full page ad. And you find like, you know, like TV commercials were kind of like the same, same thing. Like the pacing is totally different. But then, then you'll go back like two years before that and you'll be watching commercials from like 1975 and the quick cuts are, are like just insane. Like it just gets on this galloping pace and it's like, bam, 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 bam. It's like so short attention span. And it's like, well, what happened between then and then? And that's another, I mean, that's a whole other conversation that I think uh, is, is kind of fascinating about that. Like, you know, because we tend to think, we tend to think that attention spans are always getting shorter. And for that reason, media uh, becomes more rapid for that reason. But we've actually seen it come mm -hmm. back from that. Like if you look at like, something from like MTV in 1991, which was the, the height of that quick cut aesthetic. Um, that shit is impossible to watch now. It's like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, fuck, cut, 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 zip, 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 right? Um, yeah. You know, so 
those things change over time. Um, so anyway, <laughs> tangential. I promise the show. I promise the show will be much more tightly edited than this. Yeah, no, the the show will be much more on topic than this. So yes, I'm on YouTube a lot, and one of my favorite things to do on YouTube. Well, there's there's two things. First thing is I like to find movies that I've never even heard of before, right? And that that's actually a point of fascination too, because there are you'll find films that are referenced. Um, you know, like a like a filmmaker or a reviewer will reference something that was like it was made on made for like twenty thousand dollars, and it only played the drive-in circuit, but it made like thirty million dollars on the drive-in circuit, which was huge money at the time, and then it just disappeared. Right? Maybe played on TV once, probably never played on TV. There was no VHS, mm -hmm. there was no DVD, there was no Tarantino-esque, you know, re, you know, revision of this film. It just disappears down down the hole, right? And somebody somewhere found a print of it and made a transfer of it and stuck it on YouTube. Like that stuff is is like is interesting to me. Again, from a cultural archaeology standpoint, because it's like, you know, you see how um, the public consciousness changes over the course of a decade, right? So how the 70s, like, deliverance happens, and then everybody's like, oh, these are weird movies about Southern hillbillies yeah. who, like, you know, are, like, murderous. And then car movies become the thing. Then stuntman movies become the thing. Then everybody gets really into vans. So you have this, like, <laughs> yeah. like run of four or five drive-in features that are all about customizing your van or whatever. And then there's a bunch of movies about cruising, which does not actually include the movie cruising, which is very much a different kind of thing. Um, and so that stuff, that stuff fascinates me. Right? <laughs> and so, you know, I also like to, to see not so much reviews. I don't really enjoy the reviews because a lot of YouTube reviews are, are really just like a guy being like, this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And they're basically just delineating a plot for you. And at the end, they're like, I thought it was pretty good. And then it's over. And sometimes they'll put skits yeah. in there to monetize and like pat out the length. I promise there will not be any fucking skits in my show. This is a bullshit. They're, they're terribly, painfully unfunny <laughs> to do that. So, so, but the ones that I really like are the ones that are like, okay, here's some, here's some context. Like this is the world that this movie came out into. This is why it was important at the time. This is how it's aged. You know, and, and what I'm talking about now is what I plan to do, because these are things that are pulled, like little things that I see in different reviewers um, that I would like to kind of hybrid into into my own own mix, because that's the stuff that fascinates me. And so there's movies that I really would love to sit down and watch a 35, 45 minute dissectation of that just they don't exist, like nobody's done them. And so I'm like, oh, well, maybe I could. <laughs> and so that so that was something i was thinking about doing for a while and i was like oh well i'll do that as a podcast right and then what happened is we all started doing video meetings a lot more and i had this weird situation with a kind of like body dysmorphia thing where i didn't like looking at myself right not like i love doing it now or whatever but like i had this thing where like i couldn't i didn't like see my reflection i didn't like being in pictures i didn't like doing any of that stuff so now i'm doing these meetings and i'm forced to look at myself in this little box and i'm like oh well you know this isn't that bad like i mean you could you could be you know 
in video and it not, you know, be like, but getting used to talking on here actually did take at least two seasons. Getting used to seeing yourself, once you get past that, you could do almost anything. I mean, I might start doing video soon. Well, that's it's like hearing your voice on a recording, right? It can be very jarring, yeah. but then like you have to be able to hear that to know what you know what what you're driving around right like if you don't know what you're driving then how can you really use it efficiently so you have to get through that part where you cringe and you get scared and you're like oh fuck i didn't think i looked like that i didn't think i sounded like that i've been carrying myself all wrong but then like that fades away pretty quickly and then you're like and knowing that like you you know you don't have to be hypercritical and drive yourself down but you can be like oh well these are things that work about this these are things that don't work i'll try to do this a little bit less i'll do this like a little bit more and that's the the kind of point that i'm trying trying to get to in it and and plus what i think i can get across in the visual a little bit more than just the audio is i have a genuine enthusiasm for the kind of films that i'm going to be talking about mm -hmm. and i'm really hoping that i that gleam in my eye when i when i talk about these things really it kind of makes these things kind of interesting for people i very mm. much believe that a documentary well made can make you interested in whatever the topic is and hopefully there will be a little bit of that in what i'm going to do so that even if you're like oh well i've never seen that movie and i don't like that kind of film but this guy's into it, so maybe it'll be interesting to watch him talk about why he likes it. That's what teaching is. I, I had to learn that because a lot of the stuff I teach, I'm not into. I, I remember when my dad died, I just mm. lost all interest in what I was doing, and I would literally go to class and fake what I, I like imagine, excitement yeah. about what I was teaching. And I had a guest speaker come by, and he picked up that something was wrong, but the students didn't, which mm -hmm. means I, I got really good at the acting part. And... This is how you move forward. You have to take these risks and really do yeah. them. That's like a message I try to get out everywhere. And, and I see you always pushing things into another places. Yeah, the show's going to be a little bit of a mix of that. It's the extra kind of special part, the way that I tie it in with the design thing, is that every film that I cover, I'm going to be mm -hmm. doing a, a specific art poster for. Um, somewhat in the in the polish style like it's not going to be in that style but in that kind of sense where it's like you know it's kind of artsy and weird it's not going to be that minimalist bullshit where it's like well there's a suitcase in the movie here's a fucking icon of a suitcase in the middle of a field of green and it says you know <laughs> um so yeah so each one of those is going to have a different art poster and then the last five minutes or so of each episode is going to be me breaking down you know the process why i did what i did um you know what the poster you know vibe is what that's about and then i'll probably have a link i don't know if i really want to sell them it seems kind of ethically shady but i mean i think there's there's room for patreon traction there where it's like oh well you give me 10 bucks a month you get every poster that i do you know while you're in the patreon or whatever and i'm not gonna make a ton of money off that but i'm not doing this for that reason anyway i'm just doing it because i want to do it i think it'd be fun see what happens i mean one of my favorite things you did was you, you were making like just really ridiculous t-shirts and stuff that no one would ever want to buy and you kept posting it at one point someone bought one and you flipped <laughs> it out <laughs> yeah yeah redbubble was uh, fun for that and now there's like tea public and there's all these different Filmberg, coming this summer. But for now, check out Malmberg the Writer at our literary blog at flom.us stroke dare tongue.
Limited edition gig posters are available through dispet.com. And, still available, things you'd never want. Through Redbubble. Wherever you are. This is Radio Flam. Edward Raymond Turner, another inventor who used three names, patented the first color system for films in 1899. Like, long before you'd think. Movies weren't really in color around the turn of the 20th century, were they? The humans loved to see cool things in movies. The first special effect was achieved when a film camera stopped rolling and a dude stepped out of the shot. Then they started rolling again. Only to discover when the film was developed, the dude vanished into thin air! This simple vanishing effect was commonplace by the time Bewitched was on TV. 1902 saw the famous Trip to the Moon by Georges Milizis using Edward Raymond Turner's additive color system. So first color film, 1902. And for more about Trip to the Moon, stream Hugo, or just read the book. It beautifully goes all over this. Plus, train! In 1909, a simpler version of coloring films was adapted by the three named George Albert Smith. This was Kinemacolor and used two filters to create the illusion of color. The first short, a visit to the seaside was only eight minutes long, and the first true Kinemacolor movie was With Our King and Queen Through India, released in 1912 only for the process to die out around 1914 due to equipment expenses and World War I, the war to end all wars. In 1922, a year before Flom, the battle for modern showed up historically, a similar system known as Technicolor took things a bit further and no longer required special equipment to be played. The Broadway Melody in 1929 became the first color film with a soundtrack. In 1932, Technicolor was upgraded to Process 4, being the first true color system three strip color instead of two, and was used first for the animated Disney short called Flowers and Trees, while the first live-action full-length movie using this method was 1935's Becky Sharp. For Dorothy, the land of Oz in 1939 was colorful while her life in Kansas was simply sepia-tinted black and white. This followed the concept that little girls in Kansas dream in color, because the Sapia life they were living just didn't cut it. For reference, stream Ken Burns' Dust Bowl documentary. You'll see just about everything in the Midwest was actually either black and white or Sapia tinted. Now it's just reserved for any nation that isn't the United States. Because dust caused the players in the football stadium. But that's not right. What are you having me read here? What is it? What is it? What does that mean? I don't know. Sport ball. Oh, Super Bowl. Dust Bowl. That's really bad. Really? Hmm. Anywho, 
cartoons, shown before in the main feature with newsreels and bad trivia shit. Local real estate agent ads and Maria Monono showing off her legs, which got her fired by Lawrence Welk. For real? Anyway. We're in color long before it became a mainstay of the industry. Because of the short length, it was easier to color cartoons, and people loved it. Walt Disney, the Fleischer Brothers, Warner Brothers all competed with each other using new technologies such as the multiplaying camera for deep motion 3D effects. And each studio ended up with a stylistic approach much different from each other. Technicolor was used amongst the black and white offerings till the mid-1950s when the first commercial color negative films were developed. In the US, Eastman Kodak's Eastman Color was usual choice, but it was often rebranded with another trade name, such as Warner Color by the studio or the film processor. Later, two different methods would be induced, Eastman Color Negative 2 and Eastman Color Positive 2, and in 2010, it would be mostly phased out for digital methods. And because humans love to see things that approximate the real world as we know it, just go back to the Radio Flom episode where Paul and Mahalo talk about Miljevic's Black Square and how it still freaks people out even today. In the 1970s, a computerized colorization technique was invented by Wilson Markle, who only had two names, which may have jinxed everything. By the 1980s, it was possible to colorize a black and white film so nobody has to deal with all those simple black, white, grayscale images ever again. Referred to as Hollywood's new vandalism in 1986 by film critics Siskel and Ebert, Gene Siskel remarked they arrest people who spray subway cars, they lock up people who attack paintings and sculptures in museums, and by adding color to black and white films, even if it's only the tape shown on TV or sold in stores, it's vandalism nonetheless. Roger Ebert made the point. What was so wrong about black and white movies in the first place? By filming in black and white, movies can sometimes be more dreamlike and elegant and stylized and mysterious. They can add a whole additional dimension to reality, while color sometimes just applies additional unnecessary information. Cinematography in black and white is very specific to not being in color, and that's how these films were intended to be seen. And in response to all this, one can draw a line from early cinema and black and white TV inspiration to films like Pleasantville, Clerks, La Vie de Bohème, Schindler's List. Hell, to go further, black and white printing with a hint of color was used for Frank Miller's Sin City movies. Black and white made a major comeback in just the last 40 years. Like Mahalo insists students start with black and white in his film editing class. And oddly enough, every year he teaches it, less students bitch about not being able to use color. It's kinda cool. And locally, Lynn Fese is really on top of the absence of color in her Beyond Black and White show at Sacramento's Dwell Point. Postponed to end of April. It's okay to embrace your darkness. The gray area is the state of life I see. Life is not always sunshine or a rainbow. I just want to be honest, if you don't like it, it's okay. 
Even if you don't like black and white, her art goes hard as hell, especially for those rebellious vibes everyone should be feeling this month. was a brand new bot from Finkel, Shut Eye Yellow. Find Finkel Band on Instagram, Facebook, and occasionally Radio Flom. Where are you listening to Radio Flom? In your favorite easy chair? 
Welcome to Purple Rain Watch. My name's Amanda Cook. I'm essentially going to be watching the movie Purple Rain every day for the month of February or longer. Depends on how I feel at the end of March. A glutton for punishment. So this will be the audio journey of my descent into madness as I force myself to watch Purple Rain. That this is a journey inspired a bit by podcasts I've been listening to a lot lately. It's called The Worst Idea of All Time. I know that a lot of the extras and little roles are all Minneapolis, Minnesota natives. Prince wanted to have a fell asleep halfway through the round more stay is a star. The very first scene you see him in, he is wearing Oh, it's been really joyous. Flomist and performance artist Amanda Cook, otherwise known as Yolkie on Instagram, spent 40 consecutive days watching Purple Rain. Come on! Listen to her short arcane observations on her podcast Purple Rain Watch they're, they're giving me the peace sign they're giving me the rock on sign okay here we go hello to the world this is Radio Flom this is a call for art a call for writers a call for flomists Flom's Kinda Annual 423 event returns this year. Virtually, join us for the live stream of 4230 as we build the first ever Flom Zine. Just something we're going to put together in about a day. Upload your art to our experimental AI driven page that will go live on April 23rd. Details will be posted on our Dirton blog later this week. And everything except the downloadable zine will self-destruct when the day is over. Worldwide Flum. 4230. Celebrating 100 years of Food Demas and Unovis. Starts 23 April at midnight in the Oceanic Time Zone. More Flum and No Flum. Virtually Flum. 4230. Still hands-on, but much different this time. Now, the world premiere of this Earth's VHS Nightmare Mix.
radio flaws. It's a trap! Faster than an airplane. As though it were paper. As our story begins, we ask you to come with us on a far journey. And now... With Blue. If you could all just stay home while we rethink our entire way of existence and question our government, that would be great. You've turned into the radio, and are you going to get it now? Recent studies show research causes cancer in rats. Another news... The war in Korea raid is on. Meanwhile, back in the States, women are working in factories to produce war machines. The weather comes in at 96 degrees, but it's a dry heat, which is why we all need swimming pools. You know, you can have a lot of fun with an empty toilet paper roll. Get off the radio, Zowie, Zowie, if I only had my youth. Today's show is brought to you by Howard Johnson's Plastic Penis Rental. Come in and rent a plastic penis. It's okay with us. If you're at home sick and you want a dick, call the phone and we'll get you one quick. Hey! Don't eat the flom. Radio Flom, you were listening to Radio Flom. Challenging the bourgeoisie since 1923. Yeah, I pass the time in these crazy days by... Uh, I... I've been planting seeds and it's a, it's a weird thing. People have been doing it for thousands of years, but I still really don't understand how it works. Some people have a green thumb. I don't have a green thumb naturally, so I don't really speak the plant's language, but I really am trying to learn because I love plants so much. They're just the most magical things. So I'm trying to grow my seeds. I've got tomatoes. I've got zucchini. I've got um, lettuce. And I'm going to try to sprout some potatoes. And I got two avocado trees that I'm coaxing to bring me delicious, delicious avocados. I'm really fortunate that I live in a little house with a a little garden in the back. And um, it's really wonderful to tend the garden. It's one of the reasons why living in L.A. is, is really awesome. I lived in New York City for many years and lived in an apartment that is about the size of my gardening patch now. And um, it's really nice to be able to get out in the in the sunshine and uh, put your hands in the dirt. Brings you back. There are three or four people on Symbolist Salon in Second Life. No frailty, not even emos here. Thought I'd find some emo land. Love my neighbor. Finally, prosperity. And then they have to start making noise. It's a paradox, really. Everything is calm now so what can we do? That's right, put on an engine and blow some leaves around. Make some noise in the quiet cul-de-sac. Where trees were planted that don't even belong there. No one belongs there. In the U.S. they named the streets after the trees that were cut down. Too absurd. Now I will eat the lasagna from the discount store that's been in the back of the freezer since July. All my stuff comes from discount stores. Such a lover of the artisan. A poet. Did you see the naked girls protesting last month at Bernie's? 
I hate mainstream assumptions of what the world is. Advertising News. Carter's Little Liver Pills will wake up the flow of a very essential digestive juice. This juice is all important to normal, proper digestion. So why don't you take advantage of this time-tested two-way action and ask for Carter's Little Liver Pills. The best music. And now, Philadelphia-based, the last generation on film. This is Queen.
Radio Flaw. I'm Max Rothman. I sell art, mostly modern stuff. I'm open to everything. Well, look, Rothman, you're a... A, a what? You're a, a well-born sort of person. There's a lot of people in this country who don't like well-born sorts. I don't feel guilty. I think guilt is a second-rate emotion. When I came back from the war, I came back to my family and my bank account and my parents and the best care, and he came back to nothing, but really nothing. I think it's good, but I think you could go even deeper. When I look at this work, I see a really pretty solid technique, but what I'm missing is an authentic voice. One gets the feeling that you're holding something back. You've got to take all this pent-up wavering with, and you've got to hurl it onto the canvas. Just do what you do. Be anxious. Be nervous. Tell me you're the unknown soldier. Come back to haunt us with your brush, Hitler. With your brush. It doesn't have to be good, and it doesn't have to be beautiful. It just has to be true. And even if it's a lie, make it an interesting lie. Max Rothman explaining how to modern art from the film Max. Written and directed by Menno Mehis, one of the authors of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Max is a film about modern art, politics, and power, which explores what if young infantry corporal Adolf Hitler's doomed art career actually stood a chance under the mentorship of gallery owner Max Rothman, played by John Cusack. The film has subtle cues that really explain the modern era. Wonderful writing, tons of foreshadowing, plus the 12th Doctor Who and the mom from Netflix's Lost in Space. And the guy from HBO's Rome playing artist George Gross. Max has everything a good historical drama needs. Just don't confuse it with Max, a film about a dog, and Mad Max, which has a lot more stunts and a lot more leather. I've seen the future. Believe me, it came straight at us. This is Radio Flum. Most of you probably have already done this, but I'm now playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And that, did you play, have you played that, Milk? Oh, oh my gosh. I'm going to cry if we talk about that too much. Breath of the Wild is such an amazing experience. It truly is. And the art design on that and just the, the, um, the emotional storytelling without having a lot of dialogue, you know, nobody really does any voice acting on that. There's a little bit, but most of they're just like, ha ha. Mm. And you absolutely get the story with these little mouth noises that these characters make. And um, really, really beautiful, really cool. I'm really enjoying this game. I think that I will be able to withstand the um, the plague quarantine by playing Breath of the Wild. It's going to get me through it. Yeah, it might look like kind of a harsh price tag at like $60 and you need to switch. But this is a game you can easily spend 100 hours in, even if you're not much of a gamer. Totally. Because I myself, like, you know, besides my 11-hour Animal Crossing binge, I'm not much of a video game player, but Breath of the Wild is such a unique experience because, for one, it's simple. There's not like a, a lot of crazy controls. It just uses the same things in creative ways. Yeah. And it's in this huge living world that, you know... Everywhere you look, there's somewhere you want to go. Totally. 
I'm trying to tame a horse right now. It's not going, Ooh. not going well. <laughs> that's a, that's a hard experience. It's rewarding though. Yeah. You get your, they don't your like three me. horses in the stable. Yes. I need them. Yeah. And, um, little spoiler out there. There are some cool special horses oh, out in the wild. Son of a gun. I need them. Although I really want to just play uh, Animal Crossing for the froggy chair. That is, um, oh, one froggy chair. Oh, no. so <laughs> it's not in it, so, is it? <laughs> yeah, data miners have gone through, and this is literally the only bad news that has come out <laughs> of this game. <laughs> It wasn't it that like you had to like use the skin of frogs. Yeah, yeah. everyone was making uh, everyone was making the uh, Photoshop that you had to use frog villagers (laughs) to get in there. (laughs) My favorite Photoshop is someone made the Game of Thrones but made it froggy. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, if you have access to. you know, the internet, you, you don't have to get Photoshop, but there's things like GIMP and stuff. Yeah. That's some good home entertainment <laughs> is just editing photos. <laughs> uh, it's funny. That's like the language of the young people. It's just like they just speak in 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 memes and images. Yeah. Really funny. I feel like sometimes you hear that and it like sounds degrading, but but memes really are just the like connection of what makes people similar and that like humor that doesn't need to be explained because everyone experiences it. It's so true. And it's almost like, oddly enough, a froggy chair meme can say what like words can't, you know, you like get it for some reason. If you get it, you get it. And it's, it's really, uh, it's an interesting, interesting way of communicating, but it's really funny. I don't know if you've gotten into Gore, Gorefield. Do you know what Gorefield is? <laughs> Why don't you explain it for our oh, listeners? God, I hello Vincent. You know who you are out there. I'm tormented by um, a young person named Vincent who sends me uh, um, pictures of Gorefield. Which, for you, for those of you who don't know, it's if Garfield, the comic by Jim Davis, was filtered <laughs> through Hellraiser. Um, Garfield has become a uh, Lovecraftian demon who torments poor John and Odie in the most gruesome, gory reimaginings you have ever seen. It will give you nightmares that you never thought you could have nightmares. And also now every single thing has like a quote unquote sexy counterpart. So there's like sexy Garfield stuff that this person, Vincent, also sends to me that makes me very upset. And I can't look at it. <laughs> there is a bit from the podcast, My Brother, My Brother and Me. There's lots of Garfield bits, but one called The Garfield Monstrosity. Oh, God. Um, and you're already listening to a podcast now. So I heavily recommend checking out Mibib Bam, The Garfield Monstrosity and listening to that because it's both the, the like hellish and sexy Garfield. Uh... But Sticking on Garfield, there is even a now sadly discontinued podcast called. Oh no, can I find it? Oh no, where is it? Called Quag. That's Q U A G. Questions about Garfield. There's uh, <laughs> four episodes, um, and these are things like um, can Garfield get you high? 
What music should Garfield fans listen to? You know, how did Garfield respond to 9-11? It's, it's very, it's more than about Garfield. It's more about how Garfield fans in these day and ages can embody the world. I know somebody who would be very interested in this podcast. Yeah, let's let's get a revival there. Get Quag back up and going. Yeah. Uh, four episodes is not enough. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe no, we're there talking are about four Mondays in a month. So it true. can get you by once. <laughs> uh, it just all comes back to Garfield with me for some reason, and I <laughs> I can't talk about it anymore. Tickling the heartstrings in the totally wrong key. In my mind, I ran through a few versions of how this could go. In my mind, I went through a few versions of how this could go. So, you're English. And so are you. You are indeed English. And so are you. And I'm English too. Wow, what a nice house there. Last occupied quite a few years ago by descendants of the owners from its halcyon days who couldn't afford to keep the place up anymore. I'm looking at the awards you won here, and these are just incredible. I mean, the Chronicle said elegant, romantic, and gorgeous, and they hate every movie. You won winner best screenplay narrative feature at the Mystic Film Festival, and then it goes on and on and on. And so it's, I actually think directors are great for movies, but without a good screenwriter, uh, forget it. You know, I hope that uh, Oliver, the director of Around the Sun, would uh, agree with you there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I also understand that it, there, there are a lot of aspects that, uh, that make a film work. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been writing for years and I, I've got several unproduced scripts that I even I can't bear to read anymore because they are weak or they're just uh, not quite viable for uh, a, a movie that I think would work as a film and you know you have to you have to do that work I think of practicing the craft um, but I also recognize that um, it's true that there is some degree of relativity in terms of what is uh, good inter- or, or what isn't and you know what is uh, very good um, because obviously people have different opinions they have different responses to films films work in different registers there's a lot of films uh, from yeah. other countries in the world that have that work in a different register than films that you might see produced by uh, American Hollywood studios at least for the past 20 years or so and that doesn't mean that they're not good necessarily to me you know that that's kind of the stuff that I prefer um, because they, the priorities are different, the craft, uh, the structure of the stories is different, the tone uh, in terms of how you use the script to move the story along, or if it's a more abstract, experimental piece of work, uh, maybe there isn't a sort of narrative through line that you could trace in quite the same way. And uh, it's what's sort of fascinating to me is that cinema really can work in many different registers. And, you know, I do think that writing is an essential part of that. It's a way of planning out, you know, what you're going to ask of the audience for the time that you're spending with them. And now, Radio Flom talks to screenwriter Jonathan Kiefer. 
Jonathan Kiefer, you are living the life of an angsty screenwriter. Very much so. Always. <laughs> we we haven't talked in years, and you were That's originally a, an angsty uh, independent news weekly writer and it was like everyone i've ever talked to from the sacramento news and review was always just very angsty and uh we could spend a whole hour on that but uh yeah it's uh maybe another time I'm looking at the stuff you're doing you have a well-reviewed film out there film it has nothing to do with the russian opera victory over the sun does it um there might be if you read really deeply into it you might uh you might be able to find some connections there but um no i have uh <laughs> none that i'm aware paul will love that i see films as being very personal uh, i'm teaching film editing now and watching how the students respond to different things and my theory is Siskel and Ebert created the idea of the film critic and the film critic making films into things that actually do well or do not. And now that we're all at home, I am watching so much stuff that is either brilliant or crap, but the brilliant or crap goes through my own filter. So here, here's, here's my filter on what I see you up to. You're another screenwriter from Sacramento because we build them here. Uh, Greta Gerwig, Joe Carnahan, uh, someone named Tom Hanks, Colin Hanks. I'm looking at what you put, put together and I'm getting period piece with almost Tarantino-like dialogue going on. Am I even close? There is an element of period piece. There's an aspect of it that refers to the 17th century in particular, but for the most part, it's a contemporary story. and. Um, it's interesting that you would mention Tarantino. Uh, uh, he's not uh, necessarily one of my favorites, but um, there's a lot of talking in the film. So in that regard, I mean, there is, we could still have video stores in the world the way we did maybe 20 years ago. Um, I would hope that some video store in some city somewhere would have a section devoted to movies in which people just talk and talk and talk and talk, uh, and that our movie would, would be in that section. Uh, and, and maybe some others as well, because it, it was, um, you know, a micro budget project, uh, very limited resources. And uh, so we didn't really have the means to make something very complicated in terms of multiple locations, elaborate staging. And so really, it's about a relationship between two people. And one of the ways that that relationship manifests in the film is that they have conversations with each other. I brought that up because one of the things that's part of Flom is where do influences come from? I ask I mean, people that a lot. I'm like, you know, we're all influenced by something. Yeah. And so when I go looking at stuff, I start looking for those influences and I'm usually way off. It Like my dinner with Andre, one of my favorite films. Say so I said angsty screenwriter. I mean, you can't make a film about talking when the yeah. screenwriting isn't very. It's funny that you mentioned my dinner with Andre. That's a film that I haven't seen in years, but I, I loved it too. And I think that, uh, you know, yeah. it's one of those movies where you can sort of tell right away what it is going into it. And obviously it's not for everyone. You know, some people are going to be turned off by the, the whole premise of the thing and just sort of baffled by the idea that it's really just those two guys, uh, you know, having their, their conversations. Well, have an affair and up to a certain point you can really feel that you're on firm ground you know it's a sexual conquest to be made there are different questions <laughs> does she enjoy the ears being nibbled how intensely can you talk about schopenhauer at some elegant french restaurant whatever nonsense it is 
It's all, I think, to give you the semblance that there's firm earth. Well, have a real relationship with a person that goes on for years. That's completely unpredictable. You know, cinema can be many things, and, you know, being literary or play-like uh, is, is okay with me because it's not the other arts that become part of cinema, the synthesis of all the arts, really. If you can make something that is still sort of worth spending time with, because time is really the raw material. And, you know, obviously I think our film, it's like I said, it's a very micro-budget project, gone through festivals and will be released digitally soon, we hope. Uh, for both me, the writer, and I'm the writer, and also the director, Oliver Krimpus, who's a friend of mine from many years ago. Would you say... You are someone who attracts, or someone who becomes attracted. Maybe it's that you are a good boy, and you know you are, but you sort of hope you'd come across otherwise. And so uh, there's a lot of reasons that it's a very tiny little boutique product, and of course it's not going to have a huge audience, but... Um, you know, that that was okay. We kind of knew that going in, and it was really just a matter of making something as opposed to having an idea that doesn't get realized. Because, you know, we all have millions of ideas that don't get realized. Yeah. And, you know, the idea is like, well, you can write scripts and have a drawer full of scripts, but if they're not made as movies... I think right now is a great time to just hunker down and work on stuff. It's like I've convinced myself that going out and doing shit is not going to happen right now. We're stuck here. So I'm stuck here with my books. I'm stuck here with the films. I'm stuck here with the podcast. And I'm changing it from stuck with is I get to play right now. And that's really how I'm getting through it. That's great. I think that's a good way to look at it. And um, obviously not everybody is in that position necessarily, but um, with different degrees. I mean, you, you know, we all have uh, confinements. I mean, my biggest challenge is that I have two young kids at home mm -hmm. um, all the time. And so that, you know, there is a the, the concentration is the main resource and that's hard to come by. Yeah. Should you get that? Why don't I just turn it off? Are you sure? I saw someone, it was Amazon or Netflix, where you could just essentially do your own short film festival. And I'm hoping you know the answer to that. There's a site called Short of the Week, which is a good curated site that has a, an amazing array of um, short films in, in all sorts of categories. And, you know, Vimeo is sometimes kind of hard to navigate because there's so much, but I feel like there's a lot of great stuff on Vimeo, which is truly independent. I mean, you know, yeah. um, people who don't come at you by way of a marketing apparatus. So you have to kind of uh, dig around and find stuff that you like. I find that encouraging because I feel like there's a lot of artists in the world who are doing really interesting, adventurous things. I would just go there randomly and find stuff. So, um, it's not like YouTube in that way. <laughs> there's a website called nobudge.com, which is run by Kentucker Audley, who's a filmmaker and actor. And they have, I think it's mostly short films, maybe some features. I should be able to rattle these off. I just found a list. So... Sophie TV, S O F Y dot TV, shorts dot TV, uh, short of the week. It's not a long list, but they're, I mean, if you want to watch good films, uh, I'm even finding this with uh, Netflix and I have Amazon Prime. It's like you really have to dig because they put the popular stuff up front. I should ask you the big question about that. 
Um, what do you think about Scorsese and his cinema comment? When I was in England in early October, I gave an interview to Empire magazine. I was asked a question about Marvel movies. I answered it. I said that I've tried to watch a few of them and that they're not for me, that they seem to me to be closer to theme parks than they are to movies as I've known and loved them throughout my life, and that in the end, I don't think they're cinema. Martin Scorsese New York Times November 2019 I agree with him, but I don't think the... Um cinema was the right word of choice i think it's more of a genre thing well it's interesting because you know he is kind of a franchise artist himself in a way in the sense that his most recent film is basically a mob movie with de niro you know sort of his stock and trade better watch there's a lot of tough guys around here did he tell you i'm not afraid of tough guys are you i didn't think so of course, to say so is very reductive because that's not all he's about. I find his his passion for cinema is really inspiring to me. And, um, you know, anytime I get a chance to kind of hear him talk about film history or introduce a movie that I, you know, from 50 years ago that I might never have heard of otherwise, like, it's always amazing. And, uh, yeah, he has an incredible knowledge of the medium yeah. and enthusiasm for it. And thank goodness for that. I mean, obviously he's worked in film preservation, you know, and it, and it may be kind of um, a false dichotomy, you know, to sort of set up this opposition between the Marvel franchise and, yeah. you know, some other thing that we call cinema. Um, but, you know, the point is well taken, you know, you, you, the experience that you have, you know, and then I think he also likened it to a theme park ride. When I hear that, I'm like, yeah, of course, that's exactly what it's like. And they're very successful because of that. You know, except when those things become the reason that, you know, movie theaters exist or the studios that make them also wind up, you know, controlling the market or making it much harder for smaller independent films. Yeah, when it, when the marketplace, it seems like Scorsese is, is, is on our side in that regard. When it comes to genre, I'm just like, if I'm going to watch a superhero film, I it, it's I got to be in the mood for it. So it's like a switch I got to call okay, Another thing about that, that, there was a period, I think we're sort of through that now. Young directors would make you know scrappy little indie features. And the idea was that they were basically auditioning for Hollywood work. And then you know, if it worked, they would wind up getting uh, signed on to direct uh, big pictures, uh, including franchise films of that sort. Yeah. That's never really been of interest to me. Um, I'm much more interested in you know trying to make really small very independent, very personal movies, um, bearing in mind that there's not going to be a big audience for that. There's not going to be a big PR push for that. And that I'm kind of on my own, or at least, you know, with the small group of people that I work with or that, um, you know, who appreciate that kind of thing. And that's kind of okay with me. So it's, it, as long as, you know, the world is, is big enough and um, there's still room for those little independent films and, you know, I'm not sure necessarily that there is, but we keep trying. People don't like to think. So are they getting what you're putting out there? Or do you just want to hit the people who are going to understand what you're doing? I, I think that's something we all have to get used to. There's this big need to be famous. And uh, I, I think one of the things you learn in life is not everyone can be famous. Not everyone can handle being famous also. That's another thing. And, you know, it's a, it's a weird time 
where that yeah that that drive uh, exists. No. It's, it's you see it all over the place. You see it in social media. I, I can't pretend that I don't understand that, but I do find it deeply limited. And um, you know, they're asking for they're asking for disappointment nine times out of ten. Um, and yeah, there's only so far you can get with that. Um, the nature of fame is obviously something that is connected with human nature. So I think there will always be famous people and people who want to be famous. Um, and you know, the the medium of cinema is. Uh, important in the history of mass media in terms of being able to mm-hmm. magnify fame. It's interesting. That's not all there is to it. And I think that, you know, it's also uh, a nuanced art form, ideally. And yeah, the, you know, it's, I think it's healthier to have other ambitions. You know, I, I sort of like to, there's, you know, like the thing about writing, you know, sometimes when you're sort of in your own space and the solitude of writing, I really appreciate that. And I, I like to kind of have, my own sort of time and space. But then of course, being in production, in film production, it's the opposite. It's like, you know, everything is collaborative and you're everybody's yeah. in everybody else's space all the time. And, um, and I like that too. You know, I, I also uh, have background in theater a little bit when I was younger. And um, I really, you know, that, that sort of feeling of like, Hey, let's put on a play. Um, it's a very intimate sort of temporarily intimate uh, kind of pseudo family. And um, and that's very nice, too. But then when you make the thing, you know, with with theater, it's different from cinema because, you know, with cinema, you're not necessarily there uh, up in front of the audience in real time. Cinema, in some ways, is more like literature because it's like you make this thing and then someone far, far away will have a private, intimate experience of it. And you may never, ever see or talk to that person, but you just sort of have to trust that you connect. And um, yeah, that's a that's a strange thing but I, I like that about it too Radio Flom You know how Gilligan's Island went from black and white to color? That was shocking The Bronx Bull The Raging Bull Let's hear for the great Jake LaMotta ladies and gentlemen In Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull the protagonist Jake LaMotta is often filmed on a third The Rule of Thirds got its origin with painter John Thomas Smith in 1897. Using the Rule of Thirds, one paints, photographs, or films with the subject on a third, on the left or right or up or down of the composition. Contrary to the Kodak rule, the subject should never be in the center of the picture. This is beautifully done in Raging Bull. One of the best examples of this is when LaMotta and his new first marriage ending girlfriend Vicky are playing miniature golf. Vicky says that she has never played this game before. Vicky has to putt into a scaled-down church, which is on the left third of the frame. Oppositionally, Vicky stands at the far right third of the frame, learning how to putt. The scene is important because it foreshadows Lamada divorcing his first wife and marrying Vicky. The golf ball gets stuck in the church, and Jake Lamada ironically says, "That means the game is over."
Was Finkel's Green Track. Hello, Radio Flom listeners. With y'all stuck at home due to an unseen monster, I have the perfect movie to remind you of your current situation. It's Tremors, the best cult classic dealing with giant worms. Starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, and Michael Gross, this movie deals with an unseen threat in more ways than just jump scares. It has action, adventure, comedy, and scares, all lurking underground. After all, There's nothing new under the sun. So Mayalo and me should do a film on all art history. Make it like the golden era of Hollywood. Let's polish the teeth of the Enchim Lion, so he won't be remembered as the mascot of a casino shaped like a pyramid. What else do you have? Surrealism of course with Boonwell. Saw Natalie Portman in Annihilation. I didn't like the mutating plants though. Lazy modernist premise. Maybe if Edgar Allan Poe would have written about it. But, there is a reason he didn't. Remember those old movies about Sade libertinism? Back in the 70s? The Night Porter is a movie about a Nazi officer starting a romance with a Jewish girl, and meeting her again after the war and having a new romance that makes them shiver and tremble. They isolate themselves and a jar of honey falls to the ground and they eat from it in despair and anxiety. She laughs a bloody smile. In my mythology, I also find Syed who was cast by Heatherd in a barrel of cherry beer onto earth, I find her in that barrel in the dungeon of the castle of Lee. She has red skin of all the veins filled with cherry beer. You should see her in a movie sometime, very different than superheroes. What DID they talk about before YouTube you could argue. It brings out shit on top but underground I really found so much inspiration on YouTube, black metal dungeon synth, documentaries, economic and political news, avant-garde analysis. Well not what could pass for real avant-garde but in this age we can't expect much. You ever see the white buffalo with Charles Bronson? Allegory. 
Faust by Murnau, and Mephisto, also Apocalypse Now, Dark City, Doctor Strangelove. Underground. 1995. Serbia. The aesthetics of these movies is so pure. Falling down. Yes. Everything is composed. I can see a classic painting in that movie, even it's full of modernism. It uses a very classic framing. Again when you see reviews of that movie the staging and scenes are that complex again they didn't get it. Really top movie that one. I know some streaming series are quite stylish these days. We need a good vampire crusades thing right now. Game of Thrones had some interesting concepts, but they stretched it out and it got soggy. Heard the leftovers on HBO was good but it's like House of Cards. Reality makes you wonder a bit. I liked Gods of Egypt. And Blues Brothers was a pretty decent avant-garde movie. Still, we don't have those no more. I regard classic stories and mythology in Hollywood as romantic symbolism and commercial fiction as superheroes, etc. It's all there. I wish they'd take those mythologies more serious, after all it's all we got when the technology hype dies down. We should build movie cathedrals today. We should. Just heard they cut Marco's electricity in Belgrade. How is the situation in the US? Army in the streets yet? No, I, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't talk about Garfield anymore. I gotta stop. I gotta stop. It fucking dominates my fucking world. Well, what followed with the jury verdict in the Rodney King case was a tragic series of events for the city of Los Angeles. Camilla, go to school. I am. Hey, Keith, can you tell me something good about mom? What was she like? She was always helping others out. You think she's still watching over us? I mean, look around the show. Ain't nobody watching over us. Get off. This is just us. Yo, what does that even mean? Oh, gook? In Korean, it just means country. Hey, Camilla, get your stuff. You've been going down to them gook stores, and not your friends, they're using you. They treat me like family! Family? This scene is poetic as Daniel and Eli throw the shoes down from the roof. Lyricless piano music is playing in the background as the shoes are filmed slowly falling in motion from the sky to the waiting criminals below. Overall, Gook is a tragedy, and what one can learn from the movie is hard to say except for the fact that love is colorblind. Justin Chom, Gook, Samuel Goldwyn Films, 2017. Stab Comedy Theater TV is on the air! First, we were a podcast. Almost 220 episodes available now on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your preferred method of podcast ingestion may be. Then we were a theater! Located at 1710 Broadway, Sacramento, California, 95818. You know, outside quarantine, in the Forbidden Zone, where no living creature dare go with hope of ever returning home again. And now, for the foreseeable future, Stab Comedy Theater is streaming all of its programming into your homes through Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch, whichever you prefer! Every day of the week, Stab TV has something for you. Stand-up, improv, podcasts, gaming. There's something for everyone but the worst possible person in your life. Check out an updated schedule of events at StabComedyTheater.com. And watch us live on Facebook at Stab Comedy Theater. YouTube at a very long, incomprehensible string of letters and numbers. And Stab Comedy on Twitch. 
or just make it easy on yourself and go to stabcomedytheater.com where our stream is conveniently located right on the front page. So until the siren blares, freeing all of us bleary-eyed and caked in filth from our shelters and back into the harsh, inhospitable and forever changed landscape of the new normal, birthed from the what once was, sate your comedy appetite with Stab Comedy Theater TV and keep watching the skies! Next week, we're off again, but we'll clean everything up and remember to shave this time. And maybe wear pants. <laughs> I'm winking. You just can't see that. Radio Flom is brought to you in part by Entertainment. Something so popular there were at least two movies called That's Entertainment that showed nothing but clips from other films, and everybody was entertained. How's that for some dodgy bollocks there, huh? Once upon a time, we lived in a world where we had to watch our entertaining movies at a given time, at the local theater house or a drive-in, which was like a drive through but a lot slower. Because they'd show not one, but two movies, then the first one a third time, while reminding everyone the concession stand was closing after midnight. With local commercials for real estate agents and footage of Marie Manunos legs between films. Similar speaker system as a drive-through though. Has anyone noticed the Sacramento drive-in is still open on weekends right now? Movie times were read for us via a telephone, then eventually these movies ended up on the boob tube. What we used to call the television, everything was juggled around to fit your screen. And when Die Hard 2 appeared on telly, yippee Kaye, Mr. Falcon, became the censored catchphrase. And to this day, no one knows why. Carter's Little Liver Pills Fixafile.com Great printing at low prices Diego Valley At twitter.com slash Diego Valley underscore LTHM And soundcloud.com slash Diego Valley Music Seventh Swami At seventhswami.com the same seventh Swami who was sporting a radio flomty on our Instagram account this past Sunday. And when it comes to the entertainment we record, check out squadcast.fm. Remote interviews for professional podcasters. Find the people you love who aren't stuck with you inside a tiny flat, and record them for your own podcast. Because with Squadcast, you can do things like this easily without having to give the theater a bell because... I'm not sure why, but I'll bet this may have been a really wonky analogy here. So I'm just going to sign off now instead. Radio Flom has been edited to fit your head.
Sacramento, the heart of California and around the world. This has been Radio Flom, featuring a cast of dozens. Appearing on tonight's episode in order were Laurine Roy, Verodo, Jeanne Mehalo, Rera, Philippe Depré, Jérémy Ayouin, Talia Di Chico, Paul Rouen, Orion Saint-Prigny, Steve Mehalo, Jason Malmberg, Jenny Soto, Finkel, Amanda Cook, Kelsey Cooknick, Of the Source, Blue, Kidoke, Tristicia Languorem, The Last Generation en film, Jonathan Kiefer, Patrick Surface Grimsley, Chad André, Jesse Jones, Mike Koenig, J-Dog. Continuity provided by Our Anunce, Audrey Daggett, Jason Spear, Vicky Brown, et Kidoke. Radio Flom is produced by Steve Mehalo et Milk Surface. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright laws. All episodes can be downloaded for your convenience. Radio Flom contains works featured for review, opinion, critique, parody, and or artistic transformation, and will contain adult content and nudity. Flom is a faux modern art movement, art history resource that promotes learning and education through new and alternative media. Flom is your online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Instagram, Twitter, and other social media. We're all Flomists, and you can too. Donations gratefully accepted at patreon.com slash flomus. Or just buy us a coffee at flom.us slash coffee. We are at Flomus on most social media. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Kid OK saying, I'm in a cave. I'm in a cave. See, how convincing was that? And if you don't like this podcast, do something about it. Uh, I hope you guys consent to being on Radio Flom. You might get edited in. Sit your ass down and hold still. <laughs> Sit. Stay. Okay. <laughs> Worst recording ever. Where's the lasagna, John? I don't like coleslaw, John. Did you finish Lawrence of Arabia? Uh,